This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue in the prophet Micah with prophets denounced, the mountain of the Lord's house, the Lord of the whole earth, O little town of Bethlehem, and a remnant delivered. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. What caused you to choose to be a pastor? Will we feel pain in the new earth if we touch something hot? And if we are God's perfect creation, why are some born with defects such as autism or Down syndrome? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's part 17 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us. He's pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be here. This first question, I don't understand what mutants or mutations are. Could you explain it to me? Yes. Oh, this is such an important question. I'm going to answer the child's question first. And and for parents who have children, obviously the the first part of my answer is going to be brief because I I don't want to overwhelm the child. But I do want to go into a little bit more detail for the sake of parents and uh, adults who are listening. But I also want to cue parents in that these kids, they're encountering this, especially if you have kids in the public school system, they're encountering this. I have kids who come to me, they encounter this in the public school system, and they're going to hear a different story when they walk in these doors. And sometimes they struggle with how to reconcile those two. So I think it's important that we address this head on and also bring good resources to bear. So I'll make reference a little bit later to some resources that are very useful for parents, especially and for kids, like video resources to watch that are very witty and fun, but also help drive the message home very well. So here's what I say to the child. I say, mutations are copying mistakes in DNA. So when cells multiply or reproduce, they copy themselves as they divide. Sometimes an error occurs. So if you had to copy an entire book of information by hand, you would probably make a few copying mistakes. In the world of genetics, that would be a mutation. In the world of Darwinian evolution, mutations supposedly account for the origin of new animal kinds. But as we saw in the video, so we watched a video in class on this, this is not actually the case. Mutations can mess with existing DNA, but it cannot write new genetic code to produce new organisms, like moving from a dog to a horse, for instance. And if it can't actually write the necessary genetic code, then it can't drive evolution forward. Like I said, it can mess with the existing DNA. And this could provide a survival advantage in certain rare situations. But this is like throwing out the backseat of your car to gain gas mileage. It gains you gas mileage, but it doesn't add new information and a new structure to move a car, let's say, toward evolving into an airplane. That's the kind of problem Darwinian evolution faces, and mutations simply won't produce the necessary genetic code to produce a new kind of organism. Okay, so that's where the answer to the trial ends. But I'm going to expand upon this, and it's going to take me a few minutes to do it. There's a lot involved. I'll try to make it as simple as I can. But also, I want parents to know this. I want adults who are listening to know this. This stuff is accessible. I mean, you don't have to go into the weeds of of some of the, the more technical things. But the general concepts, these are accessible to all of us. If we're willing to give ourselves to the study of this just a little bit, we can grasp these concepts and teach them, I think, very effectively. So the critical point here is, first of all, the child asked about mutations. But I'm going to add natural selection to our conversation because natural selection and mutations... I want you to think of them as twin engines that are supposed to get the evolutionary airplane off the ground. But I want everybody to notice something, though, okay? We're going to give them the plane. In other words, natural selection and mutations, they can't even begin to do anything until after we have life, okay? And you need replicating life, not just life, but replicating life. 
So those engines can't get your plane off the ground if you don't have a plane. So we're going to give them the airplane. That's important to understand. If you want to study the insurmountable problems of getting life, getting the airplane, I would highly recommend the work of Jim Tour, T-O-U-R. He's a synthetic chemist. He has this outstanding, it's in-depth. I mean, look, he gets very sciencey. But if you're willing to persevere, you can get the general concepts. He's got this abiogenesis series on YouTube. And Jim Tour, he is brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. He goes deep into the science. And the cool thing is, this guy loves Jesus. And he's so explicit about it. So a committed Christian, loves Jesus, and really addresses the abiogenesis question. So if you want to talk about how to get the airplane, go from non-life to life, check out his resources. Okay, so again, we're giving evolution the airplane. We're going to talk about then is the engines that they claim move living organisms from simple to complex. So the engines that are supposed to lift that evolutionary airplane off the ground. So let's look at these engines. Let's first, let's take natural selection. So natural selection, it's oftentimes used in the same breath with the survival of the fittest. So nature selects the most fit organisms for the environment. Now, what I want people to notice here, when you see this in print, oftentimes natural selection gets capitalized. It's actually given godlike status. And that was actually really important to Darwin because he needed to get God out. He wasn't just doing it by, by saying, well, we won't consider supernatural causes. That, that's built in too. But what he was saying was, we're getting God's programming out of the organism. So we're erasing God's fingerprint, the adaptive ability that God hardwired into the organism to sense its changing environment, to process it through this remarkable if-then algorithmic logic, and then to enact changes to maximize survivability. So Darwin wanted that out. And if you want to go into more detail on that, I would check out Continuous Environmental Tracking and Adaptive Engineering. And the Institute for Creation Research is doing some wonderful work on this. And really, th this is cutting edge stuff. They are really putting forth good thinking that I believe is finally going to unseat this natural selection stuff. But for Darwin, again, he needed to get adaptive engineering out. And he did it with natural selection. Nature selects its survivors. Here's what we have to pay attention. Nature is not conscious. Nature doesn't really select anything. I mean, ask yourself this. Where is nature's brain? It doesn't have one. And there's another critical point we all need to appreciate here. Natural selection, it's not a generative process. So it does not create anything new. Now, it can sometimes preserve and eliminate, but it can't create anything new. And your honest evolutionists, they will admit this. This is why mutations were added to Darwinian evolution, to their equation, because they're supposed to generate the new information. But I want people to understand this idea of information. And to get at it, think digital code. So this is the stuff that runs your smartphones. This is the stuff that runs SpaceX's rockets. Mutations mess with the code. So here's the question you need to be asking yourself. How likely are you to get a new kind of functional smartphone or spaceship by just messing with the code? And if you do, just randomly mess with it. Here's my question. Are you going to get in that rocket? Or are you going to buy that smartphone? There's no way, because you know. And remember, okay, remember, this process is blind. There's no direction. There's no purpose. There's no intentionality. It's just randomly messing with the code. But here's the thing for people to appreciate. The code in living organisms, it's inconceivably more complex than the code that's running Elon Musk's rockets. Because the code in DNA, it communicates a meaningful message. So these are like, for example, critical instructions for protein construction. That's one of the things that DNA would be doing. 
But okay, this is amazing. If you start to research this, what scientists are discovering with DNA, it is so astonishing. DNA communicates meaningful information forward, so down the genetic code, and backwards, and frame shifted right and left forward and backwards. Let me see if I can make that make sense. So this code communicates a meaningful and critical message, what they're finding in some cases in six different ways. So imagine if you would composing a symphony that could be played as a meaningful piece of music forward and backward. And then let's say you shift the rests two spaces to the right and left forward and backward, and you still have a meaningful and beautiful symphony. Or imagine writing an essay that communicated a meaningful message forward and backwards, and then moving the space two places to the right and to the left, forward and backward, and having it all communicate a meaningful essay. See, that's the kind of information we're talking about. That's the kind of information being conveyed through DNA. And the Discovery Institute has this outstanding series of videos on this called Long Story Short. So if you just go to YouTube, Google Long Story Short with the Discovery Institute, these things are witty, they're fun, they make the science understandable, especially episodes 10 and 11. They get into this idea that I just talked about, about information compression. But for our purposes, okay, here's what I want people to ask. If you mess with that code, are you going to end up with intelligible code? There's no way. Not when you have that many layers of meaningful information baked in. And remember, when it comes to living organisms, you have to keep the organism alive the entire time. So neo-Darwinism claims that you can get to these new kinds of organisms, like going from a dog to a horse, for instance. They say all you need is just a lot of time and the gradual accumulation of information. So Richard Dawkins, for instance, he loves to talk about scaling Mount Improbable. And he says, look, I get you can't get there in one big leap, but you can eventually get there just one step at a time. And that sounds convincing, but here's the problem, okay? Dawkins wants to focus on one mountain, Mount Improbable, but there are billions and billions of mountains. Only one is Mount Improbable. The rest are Mount Death. In other words, there are way more ways to be dead than alive. So natural selection and mutations, look, they don't know which mountain to climb. They don't even know they're climbing a mountain. They don't know if any step gets them closer or farther away. Dawkins loves to tout all his computer programs that show how this is possible, but they're cheating because they always keep the positive steps toward the top of Mount Improbable. It's like a blindfolded hiker, right? At the base of the right mountain and then coaching them every step of the way. Say, oh, you're getting warmer. No, 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 colder. No, warmer. Keep going. That is cheating. I mean, Dawkins himself says, DNA neither knows nor cares. So nature doesn't know. It isn't cognizant. It doesn't have a brain. It doesn't keep a lab book. So it doesn't know if it's getting closer to evolving to a new kind of organism or killing it. And most mutations are lethal. I mean, the few that provide survival advantages, and even that really needs to be qualified because it only provides an advantage in a very limited sense, given certain very specific set of environmental conditions. So a survival advantage through mutations doesn't actually add the necessary genetic code to move an organism upward. And evolutionists often do a bait and switch on this. So they highlight, for instance, say a new trait, and they'll claim that that's an example of new information. But it's, it's actually a false claim. These new traits typically have either been caused by the corruption of existing information or by the organism itself sensing its environment and implementing a beneficial change. It's not actually new lines of genetic code. So as you can probably imagine, there's a lot more to say on this, but here's the point I wanna make. So here, just take this point home. These twin engines of natural selection and mutations, they have 
enough explanatory power to account for some limited expression of new traits in organisms, but not enough to explain new organisms, as in new kinds of organisms, like dog to a horse. And when you get into the genetic information, what you actually see is not evolution, but devolution, the degrading of existing genetic information. So here's our point. These engines, they're on backwards. So we've given them the plane and they've put two engines on it backwards. And I think it's time for a better model. And we've actually got one in adaptive engineering that sees the handiwork and the brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ at every point along the way. He created organisms and maximized their ability to adapt to their environment to maximize their survivability. This is not evolution in the Darwinian sense. It is adaptability in the engineering sense. And all glory goes to our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 17 of our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question, what caused you to choose to be a pastor? Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman, in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home, with the Word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. During this Advent season, we recall the sacred moment when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. The manger, a symbol of humility, teaches us the true meaning of Christmas. From all of us at Lutheran Church Extension Fund, may the simplicity of that manger inspire your Advent season. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Solid, serious, substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. You may be one of those pastors who need to be refreshed and refueled because of your parish ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Charles Geeshan. Concordia Theological Seminary has a wonderful program, not only in continuing education during the summer, but in an advanced study program called the Doctor of Ministry. And it's a very practical program because it focuses on congregational ministry. It incorporates biblical theology with the ministry of the congregation. It's also very accessible for pastors, and it's also affordable. You can major in pastoral care and leadership, teaching and preaching, or mission and culture. And we pray that pastors will take advantage of this program. Learn more about the Doctorate of Ministry program at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. 
He's our guest in part 17 of our series, Kids Have Questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Connor, here's the next question. What caused you to choose to be a pastor? What age were you? Why did you choose Manning? Wonderful. Okay, I love this question. And in fact, if it's okay with you, Todd, before I answer it, because I think while all of us as pastors have our own, in some ways, unique story for how we got where we are, my my belief is probably all of us at some point had somebody encourage us, somebody who suggested it, someone who said, have asked the question, did you think about it? Have you thought about being a pastor? So before, maybe before I offer my answer, I'd love to just give you the opportunity and then I'll offer mine. How did you end up as a pastor? I had no intention of being a pastor until my second year in college when I discovered that I liked studying Greek and Hebrew and theology. And to tell you the truth, even through my seminary years where I enjoyed studying the languages and theology, I did not have a burning desire to be a pastor. I just liked the studies. And really, it wasn't to tell you the truth until I actually got the call and was ordained and started serving the people that I said, hey, this is what I wanted to do after all. But up to that point, I was just kind of on a track of studying the theology, and and I knew that it would end in being a pastor. I wasn't dumb. I just, it was never, I have a burning desire to be a pastor. I was just kind of following the trail of theology and the languages. I love that story because actually, we have a lot in common. <laughs> I don't want to forget to answer the child's question, so I'm going to answer the child's question. But I am a lot like that. I did not go to college thinking I was going to be a pastor. And that, in fact, I kind of thought that's the last thing I wanted to be. I, like you, really enjoyed the theology of it and the study part of it. And I have come, like you said, once you get into the parish and started having the opportunity of sharing a life with people and bringing that theology to bear in their lives. That has been such a joyful thing. But let me go back and answer the child's question first, and then maybe I'll expand a little bit upon that, because I think we have quite a few things in common with how we ended up where we ended up. So I say to the child, these are great questions. When I went to college, I did not want to be a pastor, although I had many people throughout my childhood tell me that they thought I would be a good pastor. So I started taking classes and found myself continually drawn toward the theology courses. So after about my first year, I realized that I really enjoyed theology, learning it and teaching it. So I gave in and agreed to be a pastor. And guess what? I love it. I was probably about 19 when I decided for sure to become a pastor. Now, technically, I did not choose Manning. Manning chose me. It's a part of the pastor call process. Congregations identify men who they think could serve them well as a pastor, and they issue what is called a divine call. In other words, they believe God works through congregations to identify and call the pastor he wants to serve a particular people. So I was a pastor in Sanborn, Iowa at the time, and Zion called me. I really liked Zion and what they were doing and accepted their call to be their pastor. And I still love the people of Zion. Okay, so that's where my answer to the child ends. But I do want to go just a little more detail on this, because the one thing that I, I want to highlight in my journey to becoming a pastor was the number of people who encouraged me along the way. They saw something, I and mean, they told me they saw something in me that they thought would translate well into pastor. And like I said, pastor, especially when I was younger, pastor was not on my radar at all. When I was a kid, I'm not even sure I had a functioning radar, but I knew this. I knew as a kid, I loved the church, and the church was the hub of my life. And just to kind of drive home that image for a minute for people, this is the way I like to conceptualize the church's place in my life and in our lives as people. But if you think of a bicycle wheel, like the spokes and so forth in the middle, uh, if you imagine that we are the sliders that you put on your bicycle spokes as a kid, and the church is the hub in the center. And so you slide to the center, you go out into your vocation, you slide back to the center, you go out into your vocation. So you're always coming back to the center. You're gathering with the gathered people around pulpit, font, and altar. So we are the sliders, but we come back to the hub of our life. That's the church. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. But I, I knew the people at the church where I was gathering week in and week out, they were encouraging me toward the pastorate. 
So I think what I'd like to say, you know, for listeners, first of all, to men, are people encouraging you? And do you love the church? Is it the hub of your life? Because maybe it's something to look into. And if it's something you're thinking about, or you think, yeah, the church really is the hub of my life, and I love this, well, talk to your pastor. Call one of our seminaries, right? Ask some questions. Attend a conference there. The pastoral office is a deeply meaningful vocation. You know, when I was a kid, I thought, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but in my head, I wanted a nine to five job. That's what I wanted. You go to your job, you go home, and you're done. You check out, you're done until the next day. And I knew, I knew this much about pastor, that pastor was not one of those jobs. So I think for that reason, at first, I really resisted it. But I know this, now that I am a pastor, and it's definitely not a nine to five job. It's a 24-7 calling. I'm never done. I never really clock out. I mean, not really. I do try to observe boundaries and so forth. I do my best to maintain those, but I'm never really off. But this is what I know. For those who may have thought, maybe I could do that. Maybe I'm interested. Here's what I can tell you. I love it. Because here's one of the reasons I love it. Not just the theology part. I love the theology part. I love teaching it. I love preaching it. I love conversations with people. I love answering questions. I mean, obviously, if you listen to me at all in our interviews, I love questions, right? But another piece that I really love, and this is why I would encourage men to consider the pastoral office, because there's something beautiful about sharing life with people. It's hard for me to put in words. Todd, you probably could express the same sentiment. It's just deeply meaningful to walk through the highs and the lows with people, to weep with them, to laugh with them, to struggle with them, to experience life with them. I mean, to experience all of it. And as a pastor, I've had the privilege of being involved in just about every situation you can imagine. I've found myself just dropped into it. And that creates a bond that's just hard to describe because you've been there in their lives and you've shared it together. And I guess in my mind, it's just hard to imagine a nine to five job doing that. And to everyone who's listening, encourage men who you think would be good pastors, encourage them to be pastors. Because the thing is, you see, the shortage is real. And we need pastors. We need brave men. We need competent men. We need compassionate men. And if you know one, my request of you is, could you put pastor on his radar? Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, part 17 of our series, Kids Have Questions. We've got a question about pain and the new earth next. week on the word of the lord endures forever we continue in the prophet micah with prophets denounced the mountain of the lord's house the lord of the whole earth o little town of bethlehem and a remnant delivered join me pastor will whedon for the word of the lord endures forever your daily 15 minute verse by verse bible study on demand listen at the or your favorite podcast provider Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Clear, concise, consistent. You're listening to Issues Etc. Husband, wife, daughter, son, grandchildren, godchildren, pastor, the kids at church, basically everyone of your Christian loved ones is catered for at Ad Crucem. 
We are the place to go for all your Christmas purchases. Stock up on our amazing Christmas cards, Christmons, Christmas ornaments, unique Christian jewellery, springly cookie moulds, gifts and much more. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His Office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. CUChicago.edu. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Stewardship Ministry helps congregations grow in their understanding and implementation of a life of stewardship. Check out their free stewardship resources at lcms.org/stewardship. Managing the gifts God gives us. LCMS Stewardship, lcms.org slash stewardship. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question, Jonathan, is will we feel pain on the new earth like if we touch something hot? I think that's a fantastic question. I've thought about that question before, and and I'm going to offer the best answer I can come up with, but uh, I'm going to say up front, that I'm not going to be able to give as full of an answer as I want to give. And that's basically because the scriptures, as best I know, don't give a full answer to that question. But first, let me answer the child's question. I say, I have often wondered about this too. Let's think through it. Now, my hit pause for a second, just so everyone's paying attention to what I'm doing, because I'm doing this on purpose. I'm inviting the child and anybody else who's listening and any other conversation I would be having, I often will say things like, let's think through it. So what I'm trying to do is invite the child into the thinking process or anyone I'm talking to. Enter into this thinking process with me. Let's go together. So it's not just a matter of child asks a question, here's the answer, and we move on. No, I'm inviting them into the thought process. So everyone, let's think through it together. On the one hand, we have a text like Revelation chapter 21, speaking about the new earth that says, and maybe some of our listeners thought of this, right? So Revelation 21, verse four, he that's God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay, so continuing to the child, but I don't think it's saying that it won't hurt to stub our toe. The word for pain seems to mean something closer to deep suffering or laborious toil. So it's speaking about a different kind of pain. Further, I'm not convinced that pain is a result of the fall. In other words, I suspect it would have hurt to stub your toe or to pick up a hot coal before Adam sinned. Pain seems to be a warning system that God has given to us to alert us to danger and greater injury. Of course, this raises more questions about the new earth. If we grant that we will be able to experience pain, which I think it is reasonable to grant, then we need to ask if it will be possible, for instance, to break a bone or burn our skin or any number of things. And if that's possible, then our greater life-threatening injuries possible. Perhaps, but perhaps God will have a mechanism for bringing healing. I know this doesn't answer all of our questions on this, but I think it's about as far as we can get with the biblical testimony that we have. Okay, so that ends my answer. And I'll simply offer, if any listeners have insight into this, boy, I would love to hear it, because this is a question that I have. Now, the only other hint at an answer that I see in Scripture is from Revelation 22, verse 2, where we have this you know, description of this collective tree of life on both sides of the river of life. And John says that the leaves were for the healing of the nations. I think that's a fascinating phrase, the healing of the nations. But 
What does that mean? How far does that phrase stretch? Is this only limited to a spiritual healing or is it possibly something bigger? So again, I welcome someone maybe who's thought more about this to chime in. But for now, I think it's enough to give us a hint at an answer. And I also think this is a good place to acknowledge that Scripture doesn't answer every question. Scripture, we describe it as sufficient for salvation, not exhaustive. And, and the more I've thought about this over the years, the more I've thought that's actually probably a good thing, because I suspect we would too easily get bogged down in the minutiae and we would miss the main thing. So when I come up against these sorts of questions, when I get to the end of what Scripture says and I'm still not able to give a full answer, I rest in the reality that God is smarter than me. I don't have to figure it all out. He's got it under control. And at the end of the day, we can trust Him. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Another question about why some are born with defects. How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest issues, etc., a journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear His Word and receive His gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You're listening to Issues Etc. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Here's another one, Jonathan. I don't want to sound disrespectful whatsoever, but we are God's perfect creation, yet some people are born with defects such as autism or Down syndrome. Why is that? I think it's a great question. And I give the child all kinds of credit for asking it, because sometimes, I mean, adults who are listening now, I think you know sometimes we're afraid to ask questions like this because as the child even indicated in the question, 
They didn't want to sound disrespectful. And you can appreciate that sentiment, but it's a sincere question, and I think it's a good question. So here's what I say to the child. You're not being disrespectful at all. You've asked a very thoughtful question. Let's think through this biblically. What does the Bible say about God's creation? Now, I'm going to hit pause. Everyone listening, pay attention. Notice I'm starting, again, with the invitation to come along with me, and I'm starting with a question. So, someone once said, people ask questions for basically two different reasons. You ask a question to discover something or to teach something. So, I'm asking the question back to the child to invite them into this process of thinking and of discovering. So, I say, continue with the answer to the child. If you read through the Genesis account, you will hear the phrase, it was good, several times. And then you will hear the final assessment of God's completed work summarized in these words, it was very good. So obviously, at this point, we wouldn't have seen defects caused by genetic copying mistakes or diseases. So what happened? Well, remember what happened in Genesis 3? Remember how Adam sinned? Sin brought death into the world. And this doesn't just mean that sin makes people and animals die. It means that God's creation was twisted and bent toward death. Or we could phrase it this way. God's creation was twisted and bent away from God's very good design and intention for it. While people with autism or Down syndrome are beautiful people in their own right, they have been affected by Adam's sin. That doesn't mean that they did anything wrong to be born with these conditions. It means that sin twisted brokenness into the world of cause and effect. The truth is, we've all been impacted by sin's intrusion into the world of cause and effect. We all have health challenges, whether physical or mental, and that they affect all of us. For example, I have very poor eyesight, and if I didn't have glasses, I couldn't drive or play sports. I also have persistent back pain and sciatica, nerve pain. I didn't do anything to deserve these. I was simply born into a world into which sin affects our bodies. But here's the good news. God promises to suck the sin out of his creation. And with the sin out, we can expect to see all the twisting impacts of sin to be sucked out too. So we can expect God to restore his creation to its very good status when Jesus returns. In fact, we can expect it to be even better than very good because Jesus is going to live with us and we are going to be fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this is what we long for and pray for, healed bodies and minds in the resurrection. Okay, so my answer to the child ends there, but I want to highlight two twin truths. All right, number one, I I did mention this to the child. One, we're all bent. All humanity has been bent by sin. And that bentness manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Some of them are very visible, and some of them not so much. So the child mentioned things like autism and Down syndrome, but there are others. For example, I mentioned my eyesight is terrible. I have sciatica nerve pain that just plagues me. Uh, One of our members here at Zion, she has four kidneys four kidneys. So she has to drink a lot of water, way more than most people do, to keep them flushed and to prevent kidney stones. I have another member who has a condition in which her eyes, and I don't fully understand how this works, but they don't shed the cells they're supposed to shed. So she has to have her eyes scraped to get those cells off periodically. That just sounds, and she tells me, it is, it's exceedingly painful. I have another member, he has an interstitial cell problem with his lungs. And you have other members, I have members who are are plagued by mental health struggles. The point I want to make here is that we're all bent, okay? We're all born bent. Adam's sin was the great bender of creation. But here's the second truth I want to emphasize. We all also bear the image of God. And that means our beauty and our worth are still visible in our bent condition. So we can see this actually, if you were to think about all kinds of art and statues, for instance, and frescoes from antiquity, typically they're damaged in some way. 
but they're still beautiful. They're still invaluable. So here's our challenge as the church. Confess both about humanity. Confess mankind's bent beauty. So the fall and the image. And then hold up the gospel promise of Christ's resurrection. He's going to unbend us and glorify us. Now, I think there's some really interesting questions now we could explore when it comes to what our unbent, glorified bodies will be like. And I know Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He talks about imperishable, glorified, powerful, and spirit-empowered bodies. And it would be a lot of fun just to unpack each one of those gospel-packed words. But I'm thinking more along the lines of what our loved ones, for example, with Down syndrome and autism will be like. Because I think it's hard for us to imagine them any other way. So, Here's the thing I have sort of this percolating in the back of my mind. You can read accounts, well-documented accounts of near-death experiences, or sometimes they're called out-of-body experiences, of people who were born blind, but who in these experiences see. So their soul sees. While in their body, they're blind because the body has been bent in some way by the fall, but the soul sees. So what I'm getting after here is, I think it stands to reason that in the resurrection, that when the body is unbent and glorified, that they are going to see. It also stands to reason that everyone bent by the fall will be unbent and glorified. Now, how that all plays out, I really don't know. But like I mentioned earlier, I know that God knows, and I can rest in that. What is blasphemy? Uh, what a big question, right? So I'll answer the child, and then we'll dive into this for a few minutes. So blasphemy is basically misusing God's name. So if we curse or swear or lie or deceive by his name, we are misusing it. If we use it as an expression of disbelief or surprise, we are misusing it. Remember, God is the highest and holiest being in existence. So misusing his name is a very big deal. The Bible calls God's name holy. You can see it in Exodus 3 and Isaiah 6, among many other places, and says that we are saved by his name, Acts chapter 4. Here's the way we phrase it in the catechism when we address God's name. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So that's where my answer to the child ends. And I'm going to expand upon it just for a second. But I want to offer just one brief comment. I hope people who are listening have kind of taken a step back and realized the diversity of questions that we've asked today. And if we had had time, I would have shared the questions that I receive in a typical week. Last Wednesday, so two Wednesdays ago actually now, I had over 50 questions asked from kids and they ran the gamut, just like today, the questions we're asking. They cover a wide swath of ideas and questions. Our kids have questions, and I know our adults do too. So I think it's so important that we are doing our best to engage them and welcoming those questions. And actually on Sunday, I read the whole list of questions to our congregation and just said to them, these are your kids. They have these questions, and we need to tell them two things. Number one, the church welcomes questions. And number two, we have good answers. But let me expand upon my answer to this child. So Luther actually writes about this in the large catechism also in his explanation to the second commandment. I want to read just a couple very brief paragraphs so listeners can appreciate what a big deal this is. So Luther says, let us learn and take to heart how much is at stake in this commandment and diligently guard against and avoid every misuse of the holy name as the greatest sin that can be committed outwardly. I mean, process that for a second. The greatest sin that can be committed outwardly, taking God's name in vain. Then he adds, God has added a solemn threat to this commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, right? For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. 
That's from Exodus 20, verse 7. This means that no one will be let off or go unpunished. As little as God will permit the heart that turns away from him to go unpunished, just as little will he permit his name to be used to disguise a lie. And then Luther adds this, above all else, therefore, our young people should be strictly required and trained to hold this as well as the other commandments in high regard. Whenever they violate them, we must be after them at once with the rod. Now, okay, just pause. Luther is not advocating beating children. He's speaking about discipline here. But he goes on, and confront them with the commandment and continually impress upon them so that they may be brought up not merely with punishment, but with reverence and fear of God. So end his quote there. Here's what we need to understand. God's name is not a cheap toy. It is not cover for sin. It's not a swear word. It's not an expression of surprise. It is salvation. And scripture is emphatically clear that where God's name is, there God is. So we need to treat that name like there's a rope attached to it. Every time you say it, you're pulling on it. You're pulling God into whatever you're saying. That's why Luther says in the small catechism, which I share with the child, we should fear and love God so we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. And I just wish I could get Christians to get this because it brings me such sorrow to hear the way that Christians routinely use the Lord's name. So maybe I'll just speak very directly to listeners. If this is you, or if this is your children, please stop, repent. You've heard what Luther wrote. Diligently guard against and avoid every misuse of the holy name as the greatest sin that can be committed outwardly. Like I said, God's name is not a toy. It's not this styrofoam cup that you just toss out after you're finished drinking your coffee. It's the highest and it's the holiest name in existence. It's the name to which you owe the breath of life inside of you. It's the name by which you are saved. If you call yourself Christian, then please honor the name. Pastor Connor, you mentioned a little bit ago the influx of questions that you got from the kids in the congregation. What were some of those questions? Yeah, thanks, Todd. So what I want to share with people, okay, again, just, just to frame what I'm talking about here. These are their learning journals. They're to write one thing they learned or one question they have. What I found is these kids struggle to limit themselves to one question. So I, what I want to share is just the questions I got from one Wednesday. So this would have been two Wednesdays ago now. This was just the questions from one Wednesday. I want to share these so people appreciate the breadth of them. And if anything else I can do is to get parents and churches and pastors engaged in addressing these questions, because these are real questions from real kids, and I know from real adults as well. So I'm just going to list the questions. I'm not going to answer any of them. I'm just going to list them so people can appreciate one Wednesday's questions. Okay. Are demons possessing people real? Do pastors actually have to exercise the demon from the person's body? Are we still supposed to love family members and friends of the LGBTQ community? No surgeries or crazy things done to your body will ever change who you are as a male or a female. Is there an end to the universe, or is it boundless? If it is at the point of infinity, wouldn't it be possible for other life to exist on a planet similar to ours? How do I deal with friends and family who are LGBTQ+. Is it wrong to hurt someone to save an innocent person, like a Nazi soldier trying to hurt a Jew? Why do people believe in LGBTQ? Do you think LGBTQ will be here to the end of the earth? Did Jesus know everything when he was born? In an article in the newspaper, it talked about men and eggs for giving birth. Will that work? Will people let this happen? Is it your sin that will make you go to hell or your unfaithfulness in Christ? If you commit blasphemy because it is the only unforgivable sin, will you go to hell? Why do we need to go to church? Why do people think it's like okay for them to have kids when they are the same gender? So people that are suicidal, do you think other people like make them that way? Like from being mean to them or something? Or how do some people get that way? Why would scientists use rock dating methods to see how old the earth is when it can be proven wrong? 
is adoption unholy since kids aren't commodities? Why does God let infertility happen when he wants more children for him? How did the Christians that were persecuted by the Roman emperor Nero fight back, physically or mentally? Children should come before adults. There's evidence that evolution is false. Why do Mormons believe they are Christians? What are Messianic Jews? How can others call Christianity closed-minded when they refuse to listen to us? If people say Adam and Eve weren't alive, what would happen? What would God do? Why does it sound like you are judging adults and what they choose to do with their life, not to be hurtful or disrespectful in any way, because there's no problem with two girls or two boys? Why do people want surgery when it won't change how your mind works and the way you act? Why do people make fun of other people's jobs? Why do some non-Christians say that the same sex can marry but can't reproduce and still have kids that say, I have two dads or two moms? Wouldn't an assassin be an ungodly job? Is cussing a sin? If a parent doesn't let their kid go to church or confirmation, would that be a sin for both of them or the parent's fault? There's a friend of mine and this happens to him. Is being that person that executes another person because of the crimes they committed, is that still murder? If everyone is equal, why is there racism and sexist people? Is being a furry a bad thing? How did we go from Adam and Eve to 8 billion people? If God created other planets, why did he pick Earth? So the only important things happened in the first seven days? Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? How did 24 hours a day become a thing? Did God create it? So if you believe in God or go to church, do you automatically go to heaven? So is being transgender a sin or just in certain states? How did LGBTQ plus become a thing? So if the first animals on earth were flying and swimming, what did they eat if their other food as animals aren't on earth yet? Can you be a Christian and not believe in Adam and Eve? On earth creation, what happened on the eighth day? Why do we have tailbones? Why did the devil take the form of a snake? Why is abortion bad? Do we actually share DNA with great apes? Did the earth actually have all those ice ages? People say Hitler went to heaven because the last minute he praised God and confessed himself to God. Is that true? Can you really confess last minute and still go to heaven even though you did a sin? Who was Darwin? Did Adam name every animal, like species? And if a woman transitions into a man, do they continue to have their monthly cycle? So that's one week. One week of questions from these kids. So for those listening, our kids have questions. And we need to have an environment in the church where they feel safe to ask those questions. And every single one of those questions, first of all, I answer every single one of them in the learning journals. But number two, there are good answers available for these questions. And I guess my encouragement to adults is start engaging in these questions and start thinking of ways that you can answer them because I know your kids have these questions too. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, thank you again. Thanks, Todd. It's always a joy. We will be back with Craig Parton, author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, for our series, Answering Arguments Against Christianity. Today, the argument that the Trinity is a late theological construct. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December uses detailed illustrations and rhyming text to tell the story of Jesus' birth. It's titled, N is for Nativity. This new hardcover children's book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about N is for Nativity at issuesetc.org. Use the ABCs from Advent to Zion to teach your children and grandchildren the Christmas story with N is for Nativity. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Quality. Quantity. Qualified. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison. 
president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools.